This episode is sponsored by ByHeart. And I feel like I need to preface what I'm going to say with this. I'm a huge advocate of breastfeeding. Anyone who knows me well knows that nursing is something I believe in. And all five of our biological children were breastfed until they were 19 to 23 months old. However, we also have fostered and adopted, and I've been so grateful for formula companies in those situations. I'm also grateful for formula companies because our last two biological children, I really struggled with my supply and did all the things, spent so much time and effort, and just was never able to produce enough for them to be able to gain weight and not be hungry. And so I was so grateful for companies like Byheart. Byheart is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. Using the latest in breast milk science, Byheart created a clinically proven, easy to digest infant formula that's made with organic, grass-fed whole milk, certified clean ingredients, and features a patented protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. They're made with certified clean ingredients. It has no soy, corn syrup, GMOs, or palm oil. Curious about Byheart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com forward slash podcast with code crystal for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. So go to byheart.com forward slash podcast and use crystal to get your welcome offer. Welcome to the Crystal Pain Show, where we help you embrace your life right where you are and give you practical steps to get to where you want to go. Now, let's get a cup of tea and spend a few minutes together. Here's your host, wife, mother of three, and entrepreneur, Crystal Payne. Welcome to another episode of the Crystal Pain Show. It's a week until Christmas, and I have a few last-minute Christmas goodies for you today, including a link to my very favorite Christmas candy. Now, before you hear the word candy and think, uh, I don't make candy, that is too much work. Just hold up, because this isn't the kind of candy that requires a thermometer or cooking something in a double boiler until it reaches the perfect temperature. Trust me, I don't have recipes like that. It's actually just salting crackers, brown sugar, butter, and chocolate chips. And yes, it is so good and so quick and easy to make. In fact, I've dubbed it the world's easiest Christmas candy. If you're looking for a great last-minute gift idea, this would be it. You can make it up in less than an hour, and then we just put it in little gift sacks, and people always love it. I'll put the link to the recipe in the show notes for you, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we have. It's time for the What's Saving My Life segment. This is the part of the show where I talk about something that is making my life easier, better, or more productive. Since Christmas is coming soon and you might be hosting guests and be feeling a little overwhelmed with the thought of trying to get your house cleaned and in order, I've got just the thing for you. This is something that has saved my life multiple times, and I'm passing it on since it just might save your life too. What is it? It's a two-hour house cleaning checklist. I put this together and it details everything you need to do from start to finish to whip your house in shape and have it company ready in just two hours. If you don't believe me, just go to the link in the show notes and download it for yourself so that you can see. Or you can go to crystalpain.com forward slash clean house to download your checklist. 
You and your clean house can thank me later. Instead of our usual book pick of the week, I'm going to give you one more fun Christmas idea that our family does each year during the week of Christmas. It actually started out as sort of a fluke thing because we hadn't had a chance to buy stocking stuffers earlier in the month and it was the week of Christmas and we wanted to get stocking stuffers. So I had this idea, let's just all go to Dollar Tree and we'll buy stocking stuffers all together as a family. Well, This tradition stuck, and it has become one of our favorite things every single year. Here's how it works for us. Usually, the day that we're going to celebrate Christmas as a family, we all go to Dollar Tree together. Now, you're going to want to make sure this is not on Christmas Day, because I believe that Dollar Tree is not open on Christmas Day. I think they're open on Christmas Eve. They just have shorter hours. So everyone gets $6 because there's five people in our family, and they get $1 per member of our family, plus that gives them enough money for tax, and they get to buy something for themselves as well because my kids think it's so cool to get to buy their own stocking stuffer. We all go into the store, and we have fun sneaking around the store trying to find great items that everyone is going to love that no one else would think to get and seeing if we can keep our shopping cart or shopping basket hidden so that no one else sees what we got. We try to come up with the most original and unique ideas, and it's always so much fun. The evening where we all open up our stocking stuffers together is always full of laughs and memories and teasing each other, and it's just fun. And yes, usually someone gets more than one of the same thing, but that makes it just more fun. I love that this is something that we can all do together as a family, but also it's less expensive than if we were to go to a traditional store and buy stocking stuffers. Dollar Tree actually has some really great stocking stuffers. I put together a list last year with all of my favorite stocking stuffers from Dollar Tree. There are actually 25. I took pictures of each of them. And so I will link to this post in the show notes if you're wondering what would be good stocking stuffers at Dollar Tree. You can check it out. This episode is sponsored by Twigby, a company that offers amazing deals on phone plans. If you're looking for a great deal on a phone or you want to lower your cell phone bill, you'll definitely want to check them out. There are many reasons why I recommend Twigby. I just wanted to go over a few in this episode. There's not a contract and there are no activation or termination fees. Unlike traditional cell phone companies, Twigby gives you the ability to create your own custom prepaid plan without a contract or unnecessary activation fee. It's affordable. Their basic phone plans start as low as $9 per month. They have a variety of plans, including those that offer unlimited texting and the option to include data. Also, it's flexible. They offer plan flexibility with the ability to change plans or phones at any time for free. It's super easy to get started. You don't have to mess with going to the store and picking out a phone plan. You just go to their site, pick your phone plan, and either switch your current phone over or get a new phone, and they get it all set up for you. They offer a variety of phones to choose from. You can choose a phone as basic as a flip phone, or you can get something as fancy as an iPhone 7. And coverage is good. We got to try out the Twigby phone service for two months and we're very impressed with how great the coverage was. We never had one time that we had any issues with the coverage. Twigby customers use not one, but two of the nation's largest networks so that you will always have great coverage. 
If you want to save money on your cell phone bill, just head over to twigby.net forward slash crystal. That's T-W-I-G-B-Y dot net forward slash crystal to find out how much you could save. Plus, when you go through that link, you'll save an additional 25% off their great prices for the first six months. So visit twigby.net forward slash crystal to find out more and save. And a big thank you to Twigby for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome to the Jesse Payne Show. Oh, wait, wait. This is the wrong podcast. Um, Are you starting a podcast? I I guess I am. I actually (laughs) have uh, taken over Crystal's podcast today because we are going to flip things around a little bit. So the last time I was on the podcast, uh, we have kind of slowly shared about our life and the first few years of when we were married and uh, going through law school. And uh, this goes back to episodes one, five, and nine, if you want to go back and listen to those to get caught up. But we are going to take uh, where we left off and talk some about Crystal's experiences, especially through our law school experience, as well as starting some of our first home businesses. So let's... uh, jump right in. And I think at the point where we stopped, Catherine had not yet been born, correct? Yes. We were just sharing about, I think I shared about our pregnancy tests and how we were super surprised with that because I thought I just was had the stomach flu for seven days or something. Oh, and yes. This is when you were being quite... Uh, what's the word I'm saying? We don't need of? to talk about that again. <laughs> My hormonal <laughs> irritability. So how was that for you? How did you feel when that pregnancy test came back positive. We were in the midst of law school. There was a lot of things going on and it's just one more thing on our plate. I was super excited. And yet at the same time, it was overwhelming because this was something we wanted so desperately. But at the same time, I realized I was so sick. And I guess I hadn't calculated in, oh, I'm going to be horribly sick. And for three months, I'm barely going to get out of bed because I'm so sick. And what are we going to do to pay our bills? Because I was working as a nanny for... You had three families you were working for. Yes. And I was making good money uh, for a part-time job. And that was really helping to pay our bills. And so knowing there's no way I can keep working because I am so sick. And that was scary to me. And then it was also the thing of, well, I want to be a stay-at-home mom. So what on earth am I going to do? Because um, I have eight months now to figure this out because I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom. And actually, I already was a stay-at-home mom because I had had to quit my jobs. You had to quit your jobs. I was working part-time at the time, going to law school full-time. So I had that, those stressors on my plate. And how did you end up filling that gap as far as income for us at the time? I would lay in, the, in my bed and I would just research everything that I could about making money online. And there were all these Yahoo groups back then. That was before Facebook and Facebook groups and any social media. So I would get on these Yahoo groups and I would... What kind of Yahoo groups were they? Were they business startup businesses? What what kind of Yahoo groups were they? Entrepreneurial, different Christian entrepreneurial ones, and then just entrepreneurial ones. And really, I was looking for people who were successfully making money from home. And then I would try to build a relationship with them and I would ask them questions. What's working for you? I would ask questions on these Yahoo groups and just really learn and build relationships. And so from there, I learned about affiliate marketing, which I had had never really heard that term before. 
And I started trying a lot of stuff online. That was when I s- tried surveys. I tried. Oh, yeah. We did a lot of those surveys and earned pennies every time we'd get on. And yes, it um, ended up piling up. Yes, it did. The things where you could click on the link and you would earn three pennies or whatever. So we did a lot of things like that. But then I also tried to start my own business because that was really a dream of mine to have my own business. And so I had researched a lot. And um, one of the things that I thought would be a good idea, notice the the thought thought would be a good idea because I didn't know any better, was to provide custom-made wedding gowns. So a lot of this came from because whenever I got married and a lot of my friends got married and we came from a culture, the homeschool conservative culture, where you would want to dress really modestly on your wedding day. And there really weren't places that were offering wedding gowns that had sleeves and a modest neckline and all that. And so I thought this would be something that I could do. This was There weren't businesses out there that were really offering this and custom-made wedding gowns. So I had a friend who is really good at sewing and we started talking about it. And so I set up this business called Covenant Wedding Source. And that was the only time that we invested our actual money. We took money out of savings. I think it was $2,000, if I'm remembering correctly. Pretty sure it was $2,000. Yeah, I think it was $2,000. We bought the computer. We invested in... Um, we paid. We paid a friend to do the web design for us and the other things that we had to pay for to get this business off the ground. And so we invested the $2,000, started this business. I had no clue what I was doing. And I kind of just thought, well, if I have a nice web design and I have a business idea that I think is something people are interested in, then it's going to take off. And so we set it up and then it was crickets. Yep. But so you were acting like a middleman basically to coordinate People that were wanting to get married, they would contact you. You would set them up with a supplier that would actually sew the dress or would make the different wedding accessories. Hypothetically, you have to have people that actually contact you. But yes, (laughs) we did. I think I did, if I'm remembering correctly, maybe seven or eight weddings that we did the dresses for. But I learned a lot the hard way because weddings are really hard. Doing them long distance is very hard. And I wanted to keep my prices really low. So then my overhead costs, by the time that I got finished, I was barely making anything. And then there would be mistakes sometimes or people would be upset. So then I would have to fix it for them. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we were netting very, very little from it. But I was learning so much through it because as I was building this business and talking to all these people on these Yahoo groups, I discovered, oh, I should try this and I should try that. And so I started adding new things to that site. We started adding products and books and I started writing my own books and eBooks. They were more like booklets, but producing my own things and realizing, oh, I could actually make some money off of this and slowly building an email list. And one of the things that was really successful for me was writing guest posts or guest articles for other sites. And so I would do that. And then in my bio on that article, I would link over to my site. And every time that I would do that, once we started having the products and the books and my own products on there, then we would sell a few. It might only be that we would sell five or 10, but it was five or 10. And then we get a few more people on our email list. And so it was 
a lot of hard, hard work, but the little trickles that were coming from it, it was encouraging to me to see, oh, we have five people on our list, then we have 15, and then we have 27. And and it just kept growing little bit by little bit. And we started doing product fulfillment and having books in our home and, and shipping those books out and started transitioning to another business model from a service business model of Covenant Wedding Source to more of a product fulfillment business model in the next business. Yes, because I saw that through the fulfillment model, we were actually making a lot better profit. So with the the wedding business, one, it was hard to get customers and to convince them to actually go through with it. It was a lot of work. And at the end of the day, maybe I was making 10, possibly 20% netting. And after I paid all my costs, but then with the fulfillment business, a lot of times we are making 35 to 40% in net profit. And so that- Because of the markup on the products that that suppliers gave to us. And then when I would produce my own eBooks or booklets, I was making significantly more than that. And I was only selling those for $3 and $5 each. But, you know, when I was selling- I started then would be selling dozens of them. And then, you know, I I ended up over the course of a few years sold thousands of them cumulatively, but that was, you know, little bit by little bit. And so there was, we saw the potential there. And so I was like, I think I'm going to start a different business that is a better model. So that's when I had the idea of starting Biblical Womanhood. And how old were you when you started Biblical Womanhood? I was, so I started it right after Catherine was born. So I was 23. And I mean, at 23, I knew everything about how to be a biblical woman and I had it all figured out. And so on this, th- th- this is your eight coming out, you know? Uh, yes. Um, and so on there, I would sell all these products on how to be a biblical woman and helping women and Christian women and encouraging them. And I read somewhere, maybe it was on the Yahoo groups, they said, you should start a blog with your online business because it will help your search engine optimization. More people will find your site if you have a blog. So soon after Catherine was born, I added a blog to Biblical Womanhood. And that's when things got very interesting because as you probably can imagine, if you've listened to the other episodes, I had very strong opinions on a lot of different topics. Had? Had. Okay. I still do have a lot of strong opinions, (laughs) not necessarily the same opinions, but I still have strong opinions. So I started sharing those on this blog. It, It gave me an outlet to talk about topics that I was really passionate about. And so I would write on why women should never work outside the home, why you should always homeschool your kids, why public school was sin, why girls should never go to college, why you should never listen to music except for hymns and classical music, why you should dress modestly because I only wore long skirts and dresses, and so many, many, many other hot-button topics, including political topics and topics like feminism and other things that you can imagine caused... They ruffled a lot of feathers. This wasn't the first, you know, foray that you had into writing on these kind of subjects and giving out to people. Because when you were growing up, before we even got married, you had a newsletter uh, that you would send out that was kind of almost a foundation for starting biblical womanhood. Yeah, it was encouraging Christian young women, but that was, I had 200 people on my actual mailed newsletter list. This was before email. They were all Christian homeschoolers. So now I'm writing to the internet 
And there weren't a lot of blogs at that point. So these feminist and atheist forums started finding my blog because they found this nutcase woman who's 23 years old, who's writing on all these topics as if she's an authority when she's had very little life experience. And they started coming over and reading what I wrote, discussing it in their forums, mostly really bashing me, um, saying a lot of very unkind, ugly things. Had you ever had that before? No, I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. And the thing was, is that they... Most of them were just, I mean, they didn't want to have a conversation with me. They just thought this crazy woman, um, she's ridiculous. But there were a few people that they truly cared about me and they wanted to have a conversation and they would engage with me and they would leave comments and they would ask questions. And it wasn't just like, you're ridiculous, you're crazy, and just kind of dragging us through the mud. It was actually people saying, where is that in the Bible. Can you explain to me how you believe that? Why you believe that? And that was really new to me to try to explain to someone who's coming from a completely different background, my beliefs, because I'd always just been really around people who believed what I believed. Right. And so the more they really pressed me on these things and the more that I would try to argue back with them because I was really determined, like, I'm going to show them this is in the Bible. I'm going to show them where it's in the Bible. Because you'd always been one to know what you believe and why you believe it. And so even knowing what you believe and why you believe it, they were still challenging you to think even more about it and more biblically about it, which helped you to kind of refine what you believe Yeah, because I would go back to the Bible and I wanted to prove my point because, hello, I'm an eight. And uh, the more that I would look in the Bible to try to give them verses, the more I realized that these really fiercely held beliefs of mine weren't so black and white and weren't so clearly laid on scripture like I thought they were. And so really, it was a very slow process of, I would say, probably the next five years. But they had planted the seeds in me to say, wait, hold up. What does the Bible actually say? And really question everything that I believe and why I believed it. So it profoundly impacted me. And I'm so grateful for those women who were willing to engage in a discussion with someone who was so hard-nosed and black and white and really wanting to just prove her point because God used it to really start the process in me of taking the blinders off my eyes, of really pulling me out of that legalistic place that I was and showing me grace and the gospel. So one thing that is going through a business failure or through business changes, it's always good to look back and say, okay, what can we glean from this particular failure and this particular transition? What are some of the things that you learned from the covenant wedding source failure, the the transition to biblical womanhood, and then two or three lessons that you could give to the listeners of things that they may be able to apply in their own lives that, that you learned from your own experience. I would say that starting a business is so much more work than you ever, ever believe that it will be. And it's so easy to want to give up after three or six months when you're seeing very little fruit from it. And I'm so grateful that I didn't give up, that I kept going, that I would wake up every day and say, okay, what can I come up with that I can do today that's not going to cost me any money, 
that's going to bring in a little trickle of traffic. And so I would say the big lesson that I learned was winners aren't quitters. And, but sometimes you need to quit what you're doing and do something else, but don't quit overall and say, I just can't have a business. Maybe you need to change what you're doing and morph and evolve and figure out what works best for your audience, for you, what actually is going to bring in money. Um, and I think also for me, it was recognizing that I have so much to learn. And I think for me, I look back on those days and there's a lot of, I've struggled with shame over just the things that I wrote, the things that I put out online that I I would be so annoyed with myself if I read those posts now because I was so black and white and so harsh. And I know I offended a lot of people and there's a lot of things for me where I, f- I feel really badly and I've gone back and asked forgiveness for people from people who I know that I've personally offended. But if anyone is listening to this podcast who read those and, you know, read those posts and was offended with me, I just, you know, I'd like to humbly ask your forgiveness because I'm really sorry. But at the same time, I learned so much and I look back and I say, if I hadn't put all that out there, if I hadn't been so hard-nosed and black and white and hadn't had people who completely disagreed with me come and ask me questions and really graciously engage with me, I never would have started questioning my beliefs. And I try to remember that to this day. If someone comes in, they leave a really harsh comment to think of, you know, I want to be gracious to this person. I want to be kind to this person. I don't know where they're coming from. And also if I read something on the internet that's really bothersome to me, then maybe I want to say something really strong to that person to just remember that gracious communication can break down so many walls and so many barriers. And that can be so much more effective than coming on and just cutting someone down. Hmm. That's very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. You know, anytime that we go through difficulties and failures or what we may think of as a failure, it's actually, you can pull a success out of that and uh, lessons to be learned. And, and, you know, after this period of having the businesses and Catherine being born, we went through some other, what looked like as failures in our personal lives, but later on through the years have really been successes that we've been able to pull gold nuggets from. So, And really laid the foundation for where we are today, even right. though at the time, as we'll share in upcoming podcasts, it was felt like the end of the world. And it felt like everything was falling apart and everything we'd worked so hard for was just crashing down and shattering. And yet I look back and I see we would never have this podcast. We would never be running Money Saving Mom. You would never be home. We would never have the flexibility that we have. We would never be living in Tennessee Tennessee, if it weren't for all of that and that time in our life. So I'm excited to get to share that part of our story, even though it's hard on the one hand, but yet it's so good to be able to look back and have the perspective. It's freeing. Mm Mm-hmm. So moving on, this week's question is from Carrie. She says, uh, thank you so much for everything you do. I love your blog and books. I was curious if you were afraid to travel overseas initially. I'd love to travel more, especially overseas, but I am fearful. Do you have any insight about this or tips for being comfortable in a foreign country? I feel silly asking this. 
I think we would both say, Carrie, you should not feel silly for asking no, n- that. Not, not at all. It's very normal. Because we have both experienced that and talked to so many people who have experienced that and people who don't travel because they would love to travel, but they're just so scared to get on a plane and fly for more than a few hours. Right. And I think for me, I look back to the first time that I had a big, big trip was when I went to South Africa. This was in the beginning of, was it 2014? I think it was in January, 2014. I went to South Africa for the first time and I had never been on a plane for longer than five hours at that point. And the South African flight is 18 hours on a plane there and 18 hours back. And I remember vividly waking up in the middle of the night, the weeks leading up to it and just panicking, thinking, what if I cannot survive on that plane? Like, what if I have a complete flip out panic attack? What if I get completely claustrophobic and I like need to go open up the plane door and jump out? I mean, that was the (laughs) level of just because you don't know when it's something that you've never experienced before. You're, there's a lot of fear. And then it was the fear of what it's, what is it going to be like when I get there? Right. I don't know anything there of their language, their culture, their food, um, who I'm going to be staying with. And the only connection I had was my friend Lisa Joe Baker, who is from South Africa, but now lives in the US. And we were going to be staying with her parents and we were going to be experiencing all these new, and very foreign to me things. And so there was a lot of fear, especially because I have a great fear of the unknown. And so I just want to encourage you, Carrie, that you're not alone in this. And I think that for me, the thing that's helped me is to just go face those fears, right? which is the scariest thing to do. But if you face them, you realize that they're not as awful or scary as you thought that they would be. And once you've gone through them, you're like, wow, I did that. It empowers you to feel like you can actually do more. And one of the things that helps me is to really think of what is the worst thing that could happen and walk through that and literally think through that worst thing. And then to do your research, I always before I go on any international trip, I'm going to do extensive research. I'm going to read articles on the internet of, you know, people who have visited there. Whoa, whoa. That's more like a five. I know. I know. It's the, it's the Enneagram five and my husband rubbing off on me. (laughs) I should not even admit to you that I do this, but I look up the hotel where I'm staying or the hotels. If I, if we're staying in a hotel and I will look at, you know, what are their bathrooms like? What is the hotel like? I mean, I'm obsessive about this because for me, that fear of the unknown, I know that the more unknowns I can take away, the less fear there will be. I'll look at the area that I'm going to be at. You can look on Google Earth and you can see the area that you'll be in. Talk to every person who's ever visited, you know, look at what is the flight going to be like? I always look up, this is going to sound obsessive again, but I will look up the flight number and see is there someone who's done a YouTube video on that actual flight? And because it will be really helpful. I mean, when I flew... flew, I've I've done the same thing, but it wasn't looking up that. It was looking up air incidents. Yeah, no, don't look that (laughs) up. But when I flew Air India, because I didn't know what it was going to be like, I mean, I actually, I wanted to see what does the inside of the plane look like? How awful is this going to be? And yeah, it was pretty bad, but it helps prepare me. So preparing yourself kind of for the worst, but then also taking away the unknowns as much as possible has been right. really helpful for me. Yeah. Well, and I would agree with what, you, what you're saying and facing your fears, because bef- when I went to South Africa the first time, that was not the first international trip. First international trip was down to the Dominican, but um, that was only what, 
it three wasn't or four very hours. Many hours. It wasn't very yes. long. But the first time that we went, that I went to South Africa, it was a nonstop flight from Atlanta down to Johannesburg that was like 16, 17 hours long. And I was thinking, well, I'm we're flying like the third, second to third at the time, longest international flight nonstop. What's going to happen? What what possibly could go wrong? And and I have huge anxiety issues when it comes to flying and, and would take medication, whatever not medication, but like Dramamine and things like that to calm, you had my, to take to calm my nerves. If you didn't take Dramamine, you would just flip out on the flight with anxiety because you just go into right. anxiety and, and would, attacks. Well, the anxiety would manifest itself into like medical issues or thinking I would have medical issues. and That you were having a heart attack honestly, on that one flight. Spent a lot of money getting tests showing, no, it was not medical issues. It was actually anxiety. And mm-hmm. actually, that is really what has helped me to realize that that is actually a manifestation of that anxiety. And I can talk myself out of it and say, because the I get like heart palpitations and all, and that comes and gets worse with mm-hmm. anxiety. It doesn't mean anything. So just say, hey, this is anxiety. You're fine. And actually, the last several trips that we've taken, I've not had to take any Dramamine whatsoever. Which has been huge huge. for you. And basically, just mentally, just I break the flight down into different segments. Like Mm -hmm. our last South Africa trip, breaking it down between our stops, between stopping in West Africa and then only 10 hours more to go to South Africa. Or our most recent trip, you know, that it was seven hours going to London and then just another four hours to go to Italy. So, you know, breaking it down mentally really, really helps because you can watch movies, you can distract yourself. Don't think about the fact that you're flying over water, things like that. It really helpful. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I would suggest is to start with an easier country right. or a shorter flight Definitely. if it really scares you a lot and then work yourself up to more uncomfortable situations. Because I think that you don't want to just throw yourself into a situation that's going to, you're going to completely freak out. Right. Give yourself the um, permission to start small and work up. And also, I would say to prep as best as you can by overpacking. And that's something that we overpack, but be prepared for every different situation. Because you can take two bags for free usually. Mm -hmm. But then once you get the longer flight out of the way, those shorter flights don't seem as bad at all. So that's Mm -hmm. why it seemed easier for the London or for Italy or even going to India from London. It was more of a 10 hour flight. And you're like, oh, we've already been on a plane for 17 hours straight, we can do 10 hours. Yes. And we know how to break it up. And so the more that you step outside your comfort zone, I feel like your comfort zone, it expands and it's not as scary when you face your fears. So I just encourage you, Carrie, to to face that fear head on. And take the jump. Yeah, take do the it. jump because some of the most amazing things are outside your comfort zone. Thank you, Jesse, for taking over my podcast. I'm going to take it back now. And by the way, there will be no new episode next week because of Christmas, but I can't wait for 2019 and all the great episodes that we have planned. So have a wonderful holiday break and I'll see you back with a new episode at the beginning of January. Thank you for joining us today. For more great resources, please visit crystalpain.com. 